My guest today in the science studio is Neil deGrasse Tyson, who is an astrophysicist, the director of the Hayden Planetarium at the Museum of Natural History in New York City, and the host of PBS's science magazine series Nova Science Now. We um, have talked before, obviously. We talked at Beyond Belief. We talked recently at the Arizona State University Origins Initiative. And when I introduced you on that panel, you recall, one of the terms that I used was that you were a Pluto demoter. And that got a huge roar from the audience. You have a new book, obviously, out called The Pluto Files. Um, it seems to me that um, we should probably do... It was deal... an angry roar. It was an angry roar. roar. It was, it was no, it was not supportive. It was, it was a lot of very angry people. And, and in fact, in this book, Unscientific America, by, by the, the blogger Chris, Chris Mooney, science journalist, and Shell Kirschenbaum, their entire chapter one is called Why Pluto Matters. And basically um, seems to be an indictment of scientists for actually doing this foul deed of demoting Pluto. So... so um, why Pluto matters. Remind me again why Pluto matters? It doesn't. Oh. So why all I was minding my own business until we made a decision in the year 2000 to reorganize our newly conceived exhibits of the solar system. We reorganized it in a way to include Pluto with other recently discovered icy small cockeyed orbited objects in the outer solar system. That's really all we did. We didn't say the solar system only now has eight planets. We never said that. There's not a count of planets enumerated in the facility. Now, all we did was say, Pluto, let's group it with these other folks, this Kuiper Belt icy objects that had been, just been recently discovered. Back then, it was recent was the middle 1990s. And so went for a year without much outcry until the New York Times broke a page one story on that decision. And it said, Pluto not a planet, only in New York. And then that's when the hate mail just started rolling in, rolling in. And I realized that this hit a raw nerve within people. And the Pluto Files is an attempt to understand why. And what did you understand from looking at that mail? Oh, it's all because of Disney's dog. I'm certain of it. Uh, Mickey's dog, Pluto. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced. Nothing to do with it. <laughs> If, if so, if someone said they want to demote Neptune, do you think people would care? Do you think anyone would give it any attention at all? No. They say, oh, fine. I guess the scientists need to do it. Fine. Pluto? They learned about Pluto as kids. Pluto was the ninth planet. It's the littlest planet. And you learn about Pluto around the same time in life where you're watching cartoons and you're learning about Mickey's dog, Pluto. And the dog and the cosmic object of the same name were discovered we're, the cosmic object was discovered in 1930. The dog with the same name was first sketched in 1930. So they have the same tenure in the hearts and minds of Americans. I polled Europeans and others from other continents about their concern over the demotion of Pluto. They just didn't, they, they didn't care. They were intrigued by it, curious as to why. But nobody lost sleep. No, no one was, was uh, driven to write editorials on it. It all happened in America. And I thought maybe it was because Pluto was discovered by an American. Maybe we just have a little bit of jingoistic attitude right. towards it. Right. Then I asked P Clyde Tombaugh in the 1930s, and I asked him, do you, do you know who discovered Pluto? No. Do you know what nationality is of the person who discovered Pluto? No. Nine out of 10 people who felt strongly about Pluto did not know that an American had discovered it. 
So that couldn't be the reason. So I just blame Disney. It's that simple, see? <laughs> what they said, though, was but, but that- in all, in all fairness to the book, the book is a celebration of the public's reaction to this scientific debate. And so there are op-eds in there, and I got per extensive permissions to reproduce comic strips, and, and so it's- and, and There's some songs in there There's well. some songs inspired by the Pluto plight. So it's really a celebration. And in the end, I save my pontificating for the very end. The rest of it, I think there's a lot to learn about the Pluto story there. Did attendance at the Hayden Planetarium go up or down afterwards? Uh, the attendance at the Hayden Planetarium was at its highest right when we opened our doors, doors of the new facility in 2000. Then it sort of tails off and then it sort of levels. Actually, we took a hit, as did everybody else, in the fall of 2001 because of the uh, terrorist attacks in New York. So once we climbed back out of that, uh, we had high numbers, but I wouldn't credit it entirely to Pluto. We had other exhibits that might have attracted people. So how many people actually go through that facility? It's a, it's a lot, isn't it's it? It's hard to measure because one admission gets you to the whole museum, and there's not a ticker as you enter the Rose Center for Earth and Space compared with the dinosaur halls. But the best guess that we can give to this, it's about between one and one and a half million people go through the astro part of the museum each year. Okay. So that's a lot. So it means nearly 10 million people, more than 10 million people since we've opened in the year 2000. Okay, so you have a large public audience there. You yeah, and so we did this to Pluto and we got raked over the coals by the New York Times. I started getting hate mail and about six years later, exactly six years later, the international community of astrophysicists voted to reclassify Pluto as a dwarf planet. And so the whole rest of the world sort of caught up with our decision but it took about six years. And thenceforth, the focus of ire on our decision was diffused by the fact that now the entire community of astrophysicists was the right. object of ire. Of right. And I, I got the impression from this, this Why Pluto Matters chapter in Unscientific America that there was some sense that there was a, an arrogance and disdain on the part of the scientific community which was representative of the disconnect at the science and society level between the practitioners and the recipients, that sort of handing down wisdom kind of... Well, I, I can't comment on what their interpretations are. I can tell you that um, there was a lot of talk about the fact that the astronomers should listen to the public about how we might classify our cosmic objects. And I thought that that was, that's not how science proceeds. You don't, you don't go to the medical doctors and find them polling the public to find out what they should call their next medicine or what their next discovery is under the microscope. No other science subjects themselves to public participation in how they're going to classify the frontier of their research. So, so astrophysicists should be under no obligation to poll the public. I don't care how deeply affectionate you felt for these objects that, that we had talked about. Now, that's not arrogance. That's just simple common sense about what it is to move a frontier and the sensitivities you need on that frontier to classify or not. Now, what I was entertained by is if scientists can't agree, it's kind of fun to get public to then weigh in on it which is kind of what happened here, just to see maybe there is someone who has some insights, because clearly the scientists you know, are not agreeing, so why not look somewhere else to find out who could help out? And I don't have a problem with that, but not as a matter of policy. You do that because it's a fun diversion, not because it's, okay, now it's time to get the public to help us. No other science does that. You wouldn't want another science to do that. 
It's not how it works. So if that's, if that's what's called arrogance, that's a misuse of the word arrogance. Arrogance would be, we, ar arrogance would be, we don't even want to tell you what's going on. An arrogant scientist is one who shields, not shields the wrong word, who, who distances his or her own research from the taxpaying public that enabled the research to happen in the first place. That's an arrogant scientist. An arrogant scientist is one who doesn't even take the effort to communicate what's going on in the frontier with the public. That's an arrogant scientist. That's a scientist who, who sees it as beneath them to communicate with the public. We're, we live in a time now where there's no room for that. But it's very difficult, isn't it, to figure out how to do that? Because the, let me take the case... No, 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 no. Bull. It's, it's more difficult to figure out how the universe works. And we have people actively engaged in that. It's more difficult to understand the structure of the atomic nucleus. That's more difficult than figuring out how to talk to another human being. I don't buy that for a minute. It's just a matter of spending some brain energy, some of the formidable brain energy that's otherwise deducing the nature of the physical world. Now figure out how to talk to your neighbor. Mm. Just take a class in interpersonal communication. It's not hard. Just do it. Whatever it is you accomplish, you'll be better at it. Whether or not you'll ever become great at it, you'll be better at it tomorrow than you were today. And you keep that up for a little bit. Not only does the frontier of science benefit from that, because the public who now understands your science is voting for congressmen to allocate monies to agencies that fund that science, everybody benefits. So it's, it's, it's a challenge, but it's not the biggest challenge those scientists would have faced in their lives. It's a challenge, and it's obviously a challenge that's been met well by people like Carl Sagan, Jacob Bonofsky, and so on. You're doing it yourself now. Um, my point was that you would, nobody would claim that Richard Dawkins is a bad communicator. I mean, he spends a lot of time, major effort, websites and so on, trying to put out information. Yet, as you well remember, Beyond Belief won in 2006. Even there, you had to sort of have a word with him about the, the way in which he was... That's to this day my most viewed YouTube clip. Well, it, it's actually the 76th most discussed all time and the 90th uh, most rated of all time in the how-to and style section on YouTube, not even science and technology. It's been of all time, of all, of all? Yes, seven, over 700,000 700, views. And what you said to him after he had felt that uh, one of the other presenters' um, presentations perhaps was lacking. You're a professor of the public understanding of science, not professor of delivering truth to the public. And these are two different exercises. One of them is you put the truth out there, and like you said, they either buy your book or they don't. Well, that's not being an educator. That's just putting it out there. Being an educator is, part, is not only getting the truth right, but there's got to be an act of persuasion in there as well. Persuasion isn't always, here's the facts, you're either an idiot or you're not. It's, it's here are the facts, and here, is, and here is a sensitivity to your state of mind, and it's the facts plus the sensitivity, when convolved together, creates impact. And I worry that your, your methods, how articulately barbed you can be, ends up simply being ineffective yeah. when, when you have much more power of influence than what is currently reflected in your output.
I gratefully accept the rebuke. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> and everyone was, broke out in laughter because right. no one expected that. And there was it was they a were, nice ready for a fight. It was a right. nice exchange, but this does make my mm -hmm. point that it is not as easy to convey very complicated information at a level that is satisfactory to the practitioners of it and is informative to the recipients of it. It's hard, but so what? So, do we, do, do we choose to do things because they're easy? No. I sound like Kennedy. We choose to do it because it's hard. You do hard things because there is the reward of having achieved it when you're done. Well, it, sounds, it sounds here as though, this is something else you said about oh, Wait, by the way, yeah. I would distinguish, no one would deny that Hawkins is one of the great uh, communicators of our day. He's got his books, they're bestsellers and all the like. But I'd, I'd rather slice, uh, Dawkins, yeah, sorry. Uh, I'd, rather, I'd rather unpack the word communicator and split it into two categories. One of them is, are you effective at what you do? That's what, kind of what communication means. It means you have a message, someone receives it. There are two ends to that line segment. That's different from, are you articulate? Mm -hmm. He's articulate. That man, Dawkins, you know, he's got a, a level of articulation of his delivery that would make any American jealous. All right? It's why we all wish we had some kind of fraction of the literary education that goes on in the United Kingdom over here. So he'll say, he'll make his point, and he'll say exactly what he means, and he'll mean exactly what he says. And he'll say it with brilliant juxtaposition of words. Words that we hardly ever hear much over here, but are brilliantly put together in a sentence. Yes, he's articulate. Is the message working? If it's not working, why not? Because being articulate is not the same thing as communicating. Communicating is understanding the mind of who you're talking to. Not just how great is your oration, let people come to it and, and paw at it and study it. Are you talking... He's speaking straight to the soul of the person you're communicating with. And I don't think he is. Because there are people who are not as articulate as he is, who are actually put off by the weight of his expertise of oration. And I'm not trying to say he should... Um, what am I trying to say? Uh, I'm trying to say that if he spent more time studying the mind of his listeners, and wanted to have an effect on that mind, he would not communicate in the ways, he, he would not speak in the ways that he does. Because there's a sharpness to it. There's a, there's a wit to it. There's a, it's so sharp and so witty that it's almost aggressive. And it just, it can turn people off and it does turn people off. But in terms of education, I mean, you, you couldn't claim to have had a bad education. I mean, you, you went to Bronx High School of Science. Yes. I mean, that's seven Nobel laureates came out of there. Seven, all in physics, by the way. Stephen Weinberg uh -huh. and, and a whole collection of folks. And also... By the way, that's a public school in New York. It's not a private school. Just a, just a shout out for public school. But also to add in the Hayden Planetarium part of this, I'm just trying to get a picture of what what lifted you off on this trajectory? And, and you, you said it yourself. Again, this was at Beyond Belief. You, and th this was an, an almost evangelistic moment, if that's a, an appropriate way. I didn't accidentally land at the Bronx High School of Science. I knew I wanted to become an astrophysicist. I wanted to become an astrophysicist not because I chose it. In a way, the universe chose me. That first day in the Hayden Planetarium at age nine, 
as a kid. And I looked up, and the lights dimmed, and the stars came out. And I was called by the universe. I had no choice in the matter. I became a student of the universe with the ambition of one day being one of its participants in research on the frontier of cosmic discovery. Where, where do you come from? Where's your background? Do you have parents in science or what? No. How did you get into the Hayden Planetarium? What were you doing there that day? Oh, my parents took my brother, my sister and I to, every weekend we went on some trip in the city yeah. to visit some cultural institution or some, some place where grown-ups are exhibiting expertise in some way or another. So we went to the zoo, we went to the art museum to see the works of the great artists. We'd go to the opera, we'd go to the symphony, we'd go to the natural history museum, we went to the planetarium. And that was just one of the trips. And I happened to be struck by that, starstruck by that trip. My brother ended up as an artist and he was taken by the visits to the art museum. My sister is a sellout, she went into business. <laughs> so were you born in? Born and raised in, in New York City. Right. So Specifically you're... born in Manhattan, but that's just where the hospital was. I was, I was a resident of the Bronx, New York. And were your parents uh, American? Oh yeah, yeah, I'm second generation. So you're just second generation? American. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay, and did they have any interest in science? Nope. How... So this just happened? I said it happened, you just read the transcript. I said I'm in the planetarium, <laughs> the, scar, the stars hit me, and right. you're asking me what other forces. That's the force. That's the force. The universe called me. My uncle didn't call me. My, nobody else called me. The universe called me. So what are you asking for? Well, I already because, answered the question before you because, asked it. Because Natalie Angier in the canon quotes Peter Gallison, historian of science, and they talk about the fact that what happens is that kids get taken to museums, science fairs, science festivals, planetaria, right? And they get turned on to science. And then they get taught science in schools. And you manage to take these bright little objects that are full of inquisitiveness and make them bored. And what happens after the age of about 12 is their parents go and buy them a membership card for the Museum of Contemporary Art and they stop going to those things anyway and they don't bother more with the science. That was their argument anyway. That there's an actually a reservoir of people out there if they were getting better scientific information beyond the museums could actually be not only turned on to science but stay turned on to science. So how did you end up staying turned on to science? I would take issue with that interpretation of the data. Okay. I would say in my life experience it's not that bringing kids to the museum, taking kids to a museum, m makes them interested in science. That's my, let me say it differently. The goal here is not to make everybody a scientist. That's not the goal. What a boring world that would be. You want artists, you want musicians, you want novelists, poets, comedians, actors. You want, you want the rest of this. What matters is whether they're scientifically literate and maintain that literacy and that curiosity throughout their lives, in no, no matter what becomes their profession. Kids are born scientists. You don't have to turn them on to investigating the world around them. They do that coming out of the womb. Kids turn over rocks and poke at the millipedes. They, they pick apart flowers. They, they bang on pots and pans. They, they will do things that are experiments in the world around them. And so the challenge is not getting kids interested in exploring the world around them. The challenge is staying out of their way.
That's the challenge for the adult. How many parents do you know when the kid drags the pots and pans out of the cabinet? How, the, how many of them say, stop doing that, you're making a racket and you're getting the, the dishes and pots dirty, put them back. They just squashed an entire experiment in acoustics. At least that's how I look at it. That's the kids exploring. So the, less, the trick is to get out of their way. And people do become scientists even when they have boring science teachers. It, those, I think, are kids who never lost their curiosity for nature. And you're right, there's some classes where it gets squashed. They, the, the enthusiasm is drummed out of them. So you got to put in some ways to keep it going. I don't have a problem with that. You put in some ways, and we would continue to go back to the museum. I took classes at the Hayden Planetarium later on. I was a member of the Amateur Astronomers, Astronomers Association of New York. I had a telescope. We went to meetings, went to star parties. So I had ways to sustain it. And they were all sort of self-driven because I had the interest cast upon me by the universe when I was nine years old. So maybe the question here is, how strong is that level of curiosity? Because it needs to be strong enough to resist the forces that might try to squash it. Maybe that's really what this should be about. Well, I was also thinking about... You, you if, need the, so, sort of the rejuvenation wells to draw from so well, you can but, be... But if, 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 you, if, you, if you're trying to have a scientifically literate populace, or people, um, not second-hand scientists, but people who are informed enough about the process so that they can make appropriate decisions on policy issues when they're asked to vote on them, say... That's a good definition of science literacy. Fine. So then you say, okay, now we have a, a, a leader, a, a speaker of the house who says that her agenda in four words is science, 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 and science. And you have a president who says to the National Academy of Sciences when he goes and presents his, does his visit, that he wants to restore science to its rightful place. Okay. As was spoken in the inaugural address. Right. What is its rightful place in your opinion? Uh, science, the rightful place of science. It, rightful is, I'd rather not use that word, because I don't, I, while I have strong opinions on a lot of things, I don't care whether you share my opinion. I don't, I, so I don't lobby people, I don't write letters to Congress to try to get them to do something that affects other people who are not me. I just, I don't, that's not how I approach life. I approach life as a scientist and as an educator to try to get people thinking straight in the first place, all right? Trying to teach people not what to think, but how to think. How to interpret information that comes to you. How to think about what somebody says. How to judge what it is that someone else says. Judge the likelihood of it being correct or not. And that's how I view my role. So what is the rightful place of science literacy? It's that as many people in this nation should be as science literate as possible so that they can make informed decisions about issues that affect the health and well-being of this nation and of themselves. So one should be science literate and, can, and should be science literate for selfish reasons. It inoculates you against people who would take advantage of you for you not being science literate. Who's to say that the financial collapse of the markets would not have been either completely avoided or certainly mitigated if the borrowers had the power to calculate the effect of a variable interest rate on their monthly payments. 
if you could do that, then you could make a decision separate from the lender and saying, nope, I can't afford this. If the interest rate fluctuates to this point, I end up having to foreclose my house. You can make that decision yourself. It's empowering. Not only that, science literacy allows you to vote in ways that provide monies for the people who are scientists to do science because you know that innovations in science and technology are the engines of all economic growth of the future. And there's no greater engine of economic growth since the Industrial Revolution. And countries that know that, like China and you know, many nations in Asia, already know this. And so their investments are targeting are directed that way. So what is the rightful place of science? If you care about your economic health, it should be number one. If you don't care about your economic health, then spend money on other stuff. But when you make that decision, I want it to be an informed decision on your part as a voting member of an electorate. I'm not gonna tell you how to vote. I'm gonna tell you the consequences of your vote. Okay, let me ask you two points. One, And it's a subtle point, but for me, it's a very important distinction between me telling you how to vote and me telling you how to think about the information before you make the decision on how you want to vote. The, the problem with all of this is, that, is, is a misunderstanding, in my view, problem with all of what? the problem of the, the relationship between um, some, the scientific community and the public which consumes what they produce. Mm -hmm. and, and the purveyors, uh, the media that purvey what they think. The and there are two forms of consumption. One is just learning what's happening on the frontier. The other is benefiting from an actual marketable product as the consequence of that innovation. So these are two ways that they are consumers of that frontier. Okay. If you want to, if you want to sell, I mean, you're doing a, you're doing a program, so I, you're doing Nova Science now. I assume that your producers and you jointly figured out what would be interesting subjects, in yes. your view, to to put out there, and I see that... The, Not uh, only well, interesting well, inherently, but make good television. Right. Because the and medium, it has to work in the medium, otherwise you just write a book. And we can talk about some of those in a minute, and I really actually want to talk about some of those segments. Um, but here's, here's a, a general point, um, and it's just a sort of a large overview point, but in general, the public, people seem to want to re require certitude from science. They believe that it will deliver certitude, so that they can use the information they get from it to plan things. Science is not deliver certitude, as you well know. Science is not in the belief business, it's in the doubt business. So when people are astounded that a newspaper story three months later says, sorry, it actually isn't a depression gene, sorry, we're wrong on that one, then they start thinking, well, so what good is science anyway? They keep on changing the stories. What can I trust? What can I believe in? Right? Now, What's that about? Because plainly the media has put out a story. Are they, were they too fast to put out a story because it was newsworthy? Should they have waited a little? It's about scientifically illiterate journalists. Is it the scientists who it's need about, to get the grants and therefore need the story Well, two out? things. When you learn science in school, because you, you, you brought two separable variables together, and I want to keep them apart. One of them is, do people understand that science is more a process than a list of answers? That's a separate issue from whether the public requires an answer to something, um, sorry, whether the public comes to doubt the value of science because a result changes from one week to the next. And with regard to science being a process, that's just a missing part of the science curriculum in K through 12. That's got to get in there somehow. 
we get textbooks and there's a problem at the end of the chapter and there's an answer to it and you got to get the answer and there's and you start to value the answer rather than the process that would lead to that answer or another so so uncertainty as well as ambiguity are not elements of a science curriculum but they clearly need to be otherwise you're incapable of thinking in meaningful ways about the frontier of science and it wouldn't be hard to teach this for example you could say what's the shape of the earth you say well it's, it's a sphere you say well no it's not quite a sphere it's kind of, it's a little wider at the equator than at the poles okay so it's a little squashed sphere there's a word for that two words oblate spheroid and then you say well okay it's not quite that actually because it's slightly wider below the equator than at the equator so in fact the earth is kind of pear-shaped so that's the shape of the earth but how pear-shaped is it if you held earth out here and looked at it if if you if you used earth as a model for a cue ball in a pool table it would be the smoothest cue ball anyone ever made so these variations from equator to pole and from below the equator to the equator are actually so small that it would make no difference to you if I handed you that sphere with that shape. You would not be able to feel it and tell the difference. So that's kind of interesting. So there's no right or wrong answer here. It's a conversation about what the shape of the earth is. Not enough of that goes on in the science classroom. And because we're, we are seduced by the right answer rather than by the journey to the answer. Now getting back to to science fluctuating on the frontier, journalists got to learn that you can't, you can't hang out at the editorial offices of the journals and take every single research paper that shows up and declare that to be the next truth. That's not, that's not the next truth. The next truth is if that article gets corroborated by other research groups, if a consensus emerges, then you can talk about a new emerged truth. Until that happens, there is no truth. It is the bleeding frontier, moving frontier of science. And journalists need to convey that. If they don't, that they're failing at the job. Let me take up your first point there, which was the one about how, how you can invoke a situation in which people become conspirators in the act of discovery. Okay, so. I like that. Consp see, I just invented It's the that. British thing. <laughs> conspirators in the act of discovery. I was at a That's shortened five paragraphs that I just gave into one <laughs> phrase. I'll take it. So we were at a meeting the other evening. It was actually a bookstore um, signing in, in La Jolla. Chris Mooney was there. And a person came up from the audience afterwards and said that the reason for the scientific illiteracy was that people didn't understand numbers. One, one primary reason. His name was Ilan Sampson. He's a visiting um, lecturer at Cal IT2 in, in, in UCSD. And he'd, he'd taken a, a, a calculator, a handheld calculator, and he'd jimmied it so that you couldn't get an answer from it unless you did certain things. So he said, come up with a problem. And I said, I, I don't know, um, square root of 360 times the square root of 520. So you, you put those terms into the calculator, and then you push equals. There's nothing. There's no answer. He said, all right, now what do you think the answer might be? How would you get familiar with the numbers and actually become friends with this whole process of calculation and what's going on? I said, well, I don't know. 
square root of 360 is, is a bit less than obviously than the square root of 400. That's 20, so it's going to be less than 20, so it, maybe it's in the 18 region, don't know, but it's something like that. And the square root of 520, uh, um, 24 or something, multiply those two together, maybe you get 440 something, I don't know, 450. Put that in. The calculator at that point allowed me. Is this a real calculator yes. or a no, thought he, calculator? No, he had changed it. He had mm -hmm. made it so that it, it then said, it gave me an answer of 433.6184. In other words, it gave me the answer, but only when I'd done the effort. Mm -hmm. And he thought this was one technique for getting people to be more familiar with numbers. This goes to your point about, because you know, you stand in the checkout line and it's, you know, it's $18.47 and you give them 18.23 and they get a calculator out to figure out there's 24 cents you have to get back. And that, that happens. People now, is this just people being grumpy old men? No, it's worse than Does that. Does it matter the, uh, that in, in fast food shops, the cash register doesn't even have numbers on it. It has pictures of the food you just bought. Right. And they, put, they touch the button that has the picture on it. And we tend to forget that once upon a time, maybe 50 years ago, people would say things like, get your head out of that book and go and do something practical. So is, it, is, is, the, is the mechanization, the, the, the use of, of, of calculators, machines, and so on, which obviously makes doing that kind of intuitive math bad, is that a good thing, bad thing? What's your position on all of that? Well, I think the, they're not good at guesstimation anymore. Is that your concern, perhaps? I think his point was that they didn't have any sort of feel for numbers, feel for computation. Yeah, I mean, that's an aspect of it, but I wouldn't say that that was front and center. Right. I think front and center is, what is your, what do you do with information that's handed to you? How do you react to it? What does it mean to you when somebody says, I have these crystals, if you rub them, you'll get better. It'll cure your ailments. How do you react to that information? Is the first thing, really? Oh, I'll try it. Or, how does that work? See, what's the first question you ask of the person who tells you this? And the question you ask is part of what science literacy is about. It's how do you, what level of skepticism Skepticism is almost a dirty word. Let me say, what level of inquiry do you bring to statements that others make to you? I'll give you an example. I'm training my children, age 8 and 12, to be scientifically literate. They don't even know it, though, because I'm immersing them in things, and they just have to figure their way out of it, and they don't even know that they're subjects of these experiments. And Because I'm, I'm, I'm specking a book related to this in my head. I got other stuff I got to do between now and then, but it's in my head. And so I look to see what comes of this. For example, my daughter, when she was 11, I saw a picture of Hannah Montana, a poster on a wall. And I went back and told her, I said, you know, I just saw a picture of Hannah Montana. It was on a poster. It was, a, it was huge. It was the size of a wall. I told her this. First, I wanted to impress her that I knew who Hannah Montana was. <laughs> Anyone 11 years old. Any girl 11 knows who Hannah Montana is. So that was my first effort. But part of that was to tell her that it's a pop star and it was a huge poster. My daughter's next question to me was, how big was the wall? I said it's huge, as big as a wall, but walls can be different sizes. So she did not have enough information to react to what I told her. So she came back for more information. I submit to you that that's, science, that's a manifestation of science literacy. It's not how much science can you recite. It's not, do you, well, that's an aspect of it. It's not, can you uh, give the details of how your microwave oven works? That's an aspect of it, but that's not the most important feature. 
most important feature is the analysis of information that comes your way. And that's what I don't see enough of in this world. There's a level of gullibility that leaves people susceptible to being taken advantage of. I see science literacy as a kind of a vaccine against charlatans who would try to exploit your ignorance. Why is it that you have this uncountable number of web pages given unto the apocalypse in the year 2012? And you look them up and you see what they say and it says, Earth, the Sun, the center of the galaxy will come into perfect alignment on December 21st, 2012 and the extra gravity is going to knock Earth off its axis and it will be the end of the world as we know it. So do you just believe that? Or do you ask questions about it? Your next question, sh you, the next question should be, how often does Earth, the Sun, and the center of the galaxy align? That really should be your next question. The answer to that is, it aligns every year on December 21st. So the statements that the world is going to end in 2012 because of that alignment are patently false. Otherwise, we would have ended a long time ago on some previous December 21st, and that hasn't happened. So if you're not equipped to even know what next question to ask, I'm not requiring that you can calculate the force of gravity. I'm not requiring that you study Newton's laws. I'm requiring that you know how to ask questions to inquire about the flow of information that's ready to enter your head and affect what kind of decisions you'll make about your own life. Why is it that every newspaper article that describes an eclipse says, rare eclipse in China? Rare? Eclipses happen every two and a half years. Were you paying attention the last time? Apparently not. You don't say, rare Olympics coming up. <laughs> and Olympics are rarer than solar eclipses. So, in the end it comes down to how plugged in are you to what is the wiring of your brain as information lands upon it. All right, now there's an interesting, you mentioned one name there. One of the questions I tend to ask people is if, if anybody in history, if they wanted to sit down and have a conversation with them, have dinner with them and so on, who would you choose? Now, having read a number of things that you've and had listened to you lecture, I would have. I would actually guess. I'm going to. I'm going to ask you the question anyway. I'm, but I'm, then I'm going to tell you who I'd have guessed you'd say. And I might be wrong. But uh, who would you like to have had a conversation? Isaac Newton. <laughs> no question about it. Yes, exactly. Oh, no question about it. Isaac Newton. Newton is guilty of some of the things that you were talking about there. I mean, we're taking him out of his period and so on, but he's, the man is sitting there doing, he was the last of the magicians, right? He's doing computations about when the universe will end and so on and so forth. I mean, he's... he's well, he was basing that on, on, on biblical, yeah. um, uh, on revelation and other biblical prophecy. So he was a very religious man. Yeah. He was using the Bible as a, a reference and his formidable mathematical intellect to try to deduce what the Bible means beyond perhaps the words, the visibility of the words on the page. So in the premise that the Bible is accurate, he's doing what any curious scientist would do. I don't fault him for that. He's an alchemist. By the way, chemists like making fun of alchemists, but excuse me, alchemists were at least experimentally driven in their activities. Their work was in laboratories. They kept notes. They bet on the wrong horse. But that doesn't make their 
their exercise any less useful to the progress of science. Without alchemists, you would not have had the, the, the beginnings of what would ultimately become the periodic table of elements. That's what distinguishes alchemy from astrology. Many people say alchemy predates chemistry, astrology predates astronomy, and they're sort of kindred spirits of the past. No! 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 Because no one today still does alchemy. It's recognized as a flawed approach to understanding the behavior of matter. You still have people today getting paid by other people to read their horoscopes. So one did not lead to the other. Astrology was just sort of always there and it's, always, it's still there. Meanwhile, there are people actually trying to figure out the universe. Like Ptolemy. He had the wrong idea with his geocentric model, but he's not invoking astrology. That's 2,000 years ago. So astrology, as old as it is, is not a modern precursor to modern astrophysics the way alchemy is a modern precursor to modern chemistry. They're, they're, not, they're not corresponding... Uh, enterprises. So, since we don't know that you can't change base metals into precious metals, you don't know that yet, um, it's a philosophy you work on, and so he works on it. I'm happy to report that Newton, Newton's writings on religion, of which he penned many words, and his writings on alchemy and his writings on physics are actually very distinct written investments of his time. In other words, these did not sort of cross-contaminate each other. And so whatever was, else was true about Newton, he knew that when he was thinking physics, he was writing physics. He knew when he was doing alchemy, he was writing alchemy. He knew when he was writing about religion, he was writing about religion. He kept those separate, and other writers did not. There's a fellow named Thomas Wright, who in 1750 published a work called A New Theory of the Universe, where he actually hypothesizes galaxies outside of our own, and he's got illustrations of them. And in that, he put like eyes in the middle of each galaxy, which is the eye of God watching the universe. And it got very sort of cross-contaminated with his religious philosophy and his science. So it's hard to disentangle the two. Newton, you don't have to disentangle anything. So I don't, I don't fault Newton. Bring the man on. We'll talk. I'll say, did you know you can't actually change the atom, the nucleus of an atom on a tabletop? The energies are too great. But we can do it today. We do it in particle accelerators. I can turn lead into gold in a particle accelerator. I can turn gold into lead. That would give him a heart attack for sure if I told him we had that power. So uh, I, don't, I don't have an issue with that. That would be part of your answer to people. And by the way, he's smart enough and clever enough and scientifically literate enough so that I could just simply tell him that the energies to reach the nucleus, which defines what the element is, are significantly higher than the energies to make molecules. And nothing you can do on a tabletop can change the nucleus. So therefore, the foundations of alchemy are flawed. But thanks for this list of chemicals that you were playing with. Mm -hmm. The saltpeter and the this and the three parts that and two parts this. And uh, I, that's a good beginning. If I told him that, he wouldn't say, no, I refuse to believe that. He wouldn't say that. Because he's open to new ideas. Completely. What gets me are people who sort of get emotionally attached to a concept, even in the face of contrary evidence. That's, that's the absence of science literacy as well. Well, there's this quote that I read out of Beyond Belief that you will, you will recognize. Um, A quote of whom? Well, I'll, let's see if you recognize it. it it's, it was, um, 
The seeker after the truth is not one who studies the writings of the ancients and following his natural disposition puts his trust in them, but rather the one who suspects his faith in them and questions what he gathers from them, the one who submits to argument and demonstration and not to the sayings of a human being whose nature is fraught with all kinds of imperfection and deficiency. Thus the duty of the man who investigates the writings of scientists, if learning the truth is his goal, is to make himself an enemy of all that he reads and, applying his mind to the core and margins of its content, attack it from every side. He should also suspect himself as he performs his critical examination of it so that he may avoid falling into either prejudice or leniency. Um, it's got to be Galileo. Actually, it wasn't. It was oh, was it Giordano Bruno? Tenth. This is then tenth I don't know who it century is. Muslim. Oh, 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 uh, oh, wait, wait, no, no. Yes, yes, yes. Hang on. That's the. I do know that quote. Uh, give me a second. Uh, that's not uh, Al Hasim. Yes, it's Ibn Ibn Al Haytam, or otherwise known as Al Hazen. Yes. In his doubts, yeah, he, he figured out how vision works. And that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. And that's pretty. Well, much that's from the era. That's from the golden era of Islamic science. Yeah, a thousand years ago. Had that continued, Islam would would have discovered everything there is to know <laughs> about the world, given the rate at which discoveries were made back then in Baghdad. I mean, what a tragedy it is that that no longer exists. I think of the billion Muslims who are not participants in that exercise. And what thoughts could have been had among this huge community of people that populate the world? Um, I, in fact, I lose sleep at night asking, by absence of opportunity or political, cultural, religious philosophy, what discoveries could have been made, but in fact were not, because of the, these constrictions on how to think. Next year is the 350th anniversary of the foundation of the Royal Society. An argument could be made that that was actually a seminal event yes, in was. the history of science. Agreed. Not that there's a scientific revolution, fine, we know about that. Not that there hasn't been in all these inventions in the 10th, 11th, 12th centuries, fine, we agree all those. But to actually have a body which came together to realize Bacon's vision of a cooperative community of people working together to instantiate knowledge that they could then use to benefit society. Yes, yeah, I agree. That's moment. a game-changer. I agree. And I think that some historians of science would argue, would certainly question whether that could have happened anywhere else than in that particular social and political climate. Um, even if there had been a bacon in um, Basra, whether it would have taken off because no, it's I just a different cultural I, I, I situation. I will claim to have historical expertise the way professional historians would, but I would say that the Royal Society is a codification of what was already going on in Baghdad back a thousand years ago. It's a codification of the exchange of ideas between creative people who are open to having new ideas. That's all that is. You're going to codify it, you're going to have journals, fine. But that's what crossroads of ideas are all about. If you do not have anyone to challenge your ideas, you live in a self-delusion that you're correct. So you've got to be open. And Baghdad, a thousand years ago, was open to all manner of people traveling through, had new ideas, new products, new thoughts. Everybody's idea was not left, people's ideas were not left unchallenged. And if an idea is correct about the physical world, it survives challenges. 
and ratchets up a few notches, ultimately becoming the, the, the true nature of reality rather than your perceived nature of that reality. So I, I don't want to, I think it's an important time, don't get me wrong, but to say it could have only happened at that time in that place, that sounds like someone's thesis that makes their thesis sound great. When in fact, it, it, it doesn't take organizations, it just takes an open mind. You just did the Colbert show again for yes. the sixth time. Six. And uh, Stephen said that if you did seven, you then owned the show, I think. <laughs> or uh, own part of the show, yeah. yeah. The show. Um, he used an interesting phrase, he called you a knowledge pusher. Um, does that sit well? I mean, does that sound No, I don't right? think that's what I am, but it's, it's, if you had to sort of paraphrase and make it a quick little, you know, two-word epithet, sure, knowledge pusher. But I don't think that's exactly what I do. I don't think I push knowledge. I, if I were a knowledge pusher, I'd be like this encyclopedia giving you things to memorize with every session that we sit together. My goal as a science educator and as a scientist is to empower you to think for yourself. And that's not the impartation of knowledge. That's, I think, the sharing of outlook and perspective and wisdom so that you're empowered to make your next decision. And if you have to reference back to me to make your next decision, then I failed. I'm just looking at the stories for Nova Science Now. This is the fourth season of Nova Science Now. Uh, we're in the fourth season, yes. And you started at the end of June, so mm -hmm. there's, there's quite a number of episodes still to go. It's mm -hmm. uh, Tuesday nights and prime time. Tuesday nights, yeah, yeah, nine o'clock. Now, um, on PBS, you don't. I mean, some of this you just top and tail, right? And you do the introductions. Are there any of these where you're actually a correspondent? Yeah, every program I'm a correspondent in at least one of the segments. It's a magazine format program, and so there are multiple segments. I take you in and out of every segment, and I am the voice for the profile that we do of a scientist in every program. And uh, typically, there's one or two segments that I'm actually, quote, the correspondent, where I go into the lab and talk to my colleagues. So you've got the Moon Smasher, is that one of your... Oh, that's uh, LRO, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter had a daughter probe that dropped off that would smash into, it's called LCROSS, that's an acronym for Lunar Cratering Observing, uh, something like that. Uh, but it's a, it's a part, the, the LRO is just an orbiter around the moon to photograph its surface. They just released images of the landing sites of the Apollo, so you can see the shadows of the... Oh, right, right, of right. the the base of the lem that was left behind. It's, it's cool. So that dropped off a piece of itself that will go into a decaying orbit that will crash in the south pole of the moon, creating a plume that will then get observed by detectors that are in orbit on those spacecraft. And so there's a, we did a whole segment on that. So this would be proof that in fact there was a moon mission. If you've got the photographs now from this LRO. This is what Lawrence Krauss was saying at a, meet, at a presentation he gave the other evening. Um, yeah, I don't Unless, of course, use the these word photographs proof. are now... Yeah, I don't use the word proof. Proof should be reserved for math, specific cases of mathematics. Um, if someone requires a photograph to be convinced of something, then we now have photographs of the landing sites. Right. But to say that that's proof, but anything else we've said about the moon launches are not proof, I, I, I'm not going to go there. I can tell you that you can calculate how much fuel is in the Saturn V rocket, and it's enough fuel to get the capsule to the moon and back. Where else, the, where else is the Saturn V rocket? He's not going to the local grocery store. 
when the thing launched that they had enough fuel to go to the moon. So it went to the moon. Uh, we, should be, we should celebrate the fact that there are people in our own culture who are so enchanted by the advances in our technology that they can't even believe what they see. I'm, I'm impressed by that. Well, yeah, but well, look, if you've got, uh, here's a, all right, so let me play, a, let me be a Luddite for a minute, okay? Luddites being the people who wanted to overturn technology in Britain in the 1800s. You're followers of Ludd, if I remember right. correctly. Right, right. Uh, you if have you a name like Ludd, that you had nothing. What, you have a segment on dark matter, for example. Or you have, we now have the Large Hadron Collider w w producing yet more minuscule shards of matter, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And we have astronomers using great giant cosmic terms about the size of everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, none of these things are things that people's minds can actually come to grips with. You, you would agree? I mean, the, the, I agree entirely. You can't do those kind of right. numbers and you right. can't do that. So you have to train yourself to not require that your mind have to grip it in order to appreciate what it is. So you, you work at that. Right. So, so how popular are these things, and why would these things be popular? Because they're mysteries. As opposed, to, because they're mysteries. As yes. opposed, to, I was going to say, as opposed to what you were talking about before, which is people get learning how to communicate with each other and navigate through social space more effectively. No, they're, they're or mysteries. not have a war in Iraq or whatever. People like it when scientists don't know something. And the funny thing is, ah. any scientist on the frontier of research doesn't know stuff. That's why they're there with a foot in what is known and a foot in what is unknown and trying to push that boundary. So that's why when you see newspaper articles that begin, uh, this new data will now have to send the scientists back to the drawing board. Have, they'll have to release their cherished theories. Of the, you'd think that we're just sitting back in our office, legs up on the, on the counter, basking in our brilliance. No. No. If there's a day that goes by where I'm not ignorant of something, I'm not in the game. You're only in the game if you can speak fluently about what you don't know. And dark matter is a profound area of ignorance in astrophysics. So is dark energy. So is the transition from inanimate molecules to animate life. That's a frontier of biology. There's, these are fascinating frontiers and in my life experience the public is fascinated by them. Well, do you really want to speak fluently about something you don't know? I mean, that sounds like an economist or a lawyer. I mean. No, I, what I should have said is speak candidly. About my ignorance, not fluently. Oh, okay. Should have said. All right. Fluently and candidly. Which of the which of the have you got any read at all of which of the stories tend tend to be the most popular? You, uh, my guess is that you're saying the, these the stories that are most popular are our profiles. We find a scientist, typically on the youngish side. Youngish, it would be like fifty and younger, rather than sort of senior, you know, gray and established. And typically, our profiles are people who have had some struggle that they overcame or that they had something unusual about their background right. that makes better storytelling for television. Right. The profiles, we would do a profile every single episode. And those tend, because we, we tell you about their childhood, we interview their family, their mother, you know, this sort of thing. And people relate to that. People right. feel so, more connected to the science when they learn the personality of the scientist. If you, if you look in the lists and, and magazine articles, Time is 100 Most Influential, this and that and the other, uh, the, the phrase tends to creep in with you, rock star, scientist, da 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 da. I, there was a season, was it a year or two ago, where you actually did have a rock star scientist, Pardis Sabiti? Who, um, oh, yeah, yes. She, she was a, a scientist who, who played in a band. Now, yeah. here's a question. Played guitar for you. in a here's band. Here's a question. For you. I'm not getting at you, but, but you, You're you, not what? you got into. Did, 
Jimi Hendrix garb for that, if you, for the opening for that thing. Oh, in the little interstitials yeah, that I do yeah. to get you in and out of right. a segment, uh, we do fun, fun right. things, and I usually dress up as some character or another. Right. And in one of them, yeah, I dressed up as a rock star with a bandana. Yeah. Very Jimi Hendrix. I can't, I can't play a guitar. So we had to, you know, splice. Oh, so you were doing air guitar then? <laughs> I was pretending like I was playing, and I think they put in some real uh, strong guitar riff. And and she was very. Uh, that's, so the, those kind of people, you uh, are really interesting people. I mean, uh, you know. Came yeah, they show you. By the way, it's not an attempt to show that no scientists are nerds, but it's definitely an effort to show you that there are enough who are not. That you should rid yourself of the stereotype that the media and movies have given to you of who and what a scientist is. Do you, I mean, you, read, you originally read physics. You studied uh, physics. My, yeah, in college, I, uh, my undergraduate degree is in physics. Right. Do you, no, do, knowing I mean, all along that I was going to do astrophysics. Do you stick with, I mean, what do you, what do, you do? Do you actually ponder about some of these issues like uh, the work of David Bohm or John Stuart Bell, the non-locality issues and whether those kinds of enigmas have any connection to ethical positions and so on, the, the, the connections between physics and philosophy and so on? No, I'm so disappointed with philosophy. It, uh, it's philosophy in the 20th century. Rather, philosophy conducted by philosophers who are trained in the 20th century have made, as far as I've been able to judge, no contributions to the advance of our understanding of the physical universe. And there was a time when they did, but not in the era of modern physics, so which is basically the 20th century and onward, relativity, quantum mechanics, and the like. So, I don't, I don't, I don't have the time or energy or interest in occupying myself with those thoughts, because in my experience, they don't actually get you anywhere. They just, they're conversations to have over a beer when you got nothing else to talk about. Let me just stop. No, those are strong words, and I don't say them lightly. No, I know. I could say uh, there are plenty of philosophers. You know, Kant made some significant contributions to our understanding of uh, the nebular hypothesis that we traced to, to Kant. Is how it was what we still invoke to understand the formation of solar systems and galaxies and the like. I, I would I would say the last sort of great contribution that comes out of sort of the I would call it philosophy, even though it was principally math, was uh, uh, Gödel's theorem. After that, I, I don't see anybody who's trained as a philosopher in a philosophy department advancing physics. I just don't see that. Well, let me, let me push you specifically on, on, on the physics there of non-locality again. Because um, I had this conversation with a number of, of leading physicists, and they, because there are no hard and fast answers, they, they, they still seem... Obviously, the jury is still out. But at least we're now seeing books coming out, albeit from... Um, uh, Louisa Gilder, um, who's not a professional scientist, but has done a wonderful book called *The Age of Entanglement*. So, and, and it seems like there are more scientists now, physicists, going into entanglement. Uh, perhaps because string theory isn't your favorite thing. String theory is not panning out. I have no idea. But so, what, what's your sense of the of the of the state of play in, in these various physics fields that intersect always, wherever you go to a conference, with philosophy. It's entanglement in philosophy. It's what does string theory mean, and what does it mean dark matter, and so on. We have our five senses, our celebrated five senses. In fact, we're, they're over-celebrated because we can make detectors that are better than all, all five of them. And we know how feeble they are 
or how incomplete they are in their tasks, given what is possible in the natural world. So from those five senses, from birth, you acquire an understanding of what makes sense to you, because those are things that you see happen and repeat in your lifetime, according to your five senses. Only on the frontier of science, physics in particular, have we been able to extend, grant us access to the universe beyond the capacity of our senses to do so. And what we have found is that the universe does not make sense outside of the realm of our, the access that our senses has to it. So you look down what's in a microscope, you look at a drop of pond water, it's teeming with microorganisms. That doesn't make sense. How could they all fit in this one? How could they be this big? All right, we get used to that. Oh, well, then we have atoms and mo molecules and atoms. And there's a whole branch of physics that had to be invented just to account for what we see. Particles popping in and out of existence, tunneling through barriers of energy and space and time. No longer can you invoke common sense to judge whether or not that's accurate, whether or not it's true. Because all that matters is that it's measured to be true. Period. Leave your senses at home. They're of no use to you. And so here we have our senses and we have this limited vocabulary. And I tell you, this is a particle and a wave. Well, which is it? it your brain doesn't experience particles and waves being the same thing at the same time. So to question that is not truly questioning nature. It's questioning the feeble vocabulary that we have to account for nature outside of our senses. So I'm not going to make a federal case over things we don't understand that happen in the quantum mechanical world. I'm just not. Because that's trying to invoke our common sense on something that's outside of our common sense. I'm happy to create a whole new kind of common sense, a quantum sense, that allows the quantum universe to unfold in just whatever way it needs to unfold. And I don't need to question it. And if it's issues of the, the Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen experiment, the, the, the dual slit, the, is the cat alive or is it dead? Is it Go on, make your list of these experiments and call on the philosophers to help you understand them. The philosophers are going to bring their five senses along with yours. That's not going to help. You're going to think you're onto some deep question when in fact you're just revealing the limitations of our biological senses. So I don't distract myself over questions that sound inherently contradictory if in fact experiment bears them to be true. Would you describe yourself as an agnostic or a believer in some faith or other? Or agnostic is, is probably the closest. A Huxleyan term. Yeah, yeah. As Huxley intended the word to be used, I would say that's what I am. Because those debates where we first met, those meetings, that it's, it still goes on, obviously. There is there's still continuing... In the beyond belief, the, the gatherings religion, of rabid atheists. Religion and science <laughs> uh, meetings continue, yeah. Do you still have a dog in that hunt? I never had a dog in that hunt. Never. The only dog I had was because I got pulled into it. So I had to like find a dog. All right, so, all right, here's my dog. I need a dog. Here's my dog. All right, but I had to like 
get a dog to, to put into the, into, the, into the fight. And the dog I put in was simple. I just said that intelligent design, as the subject of the day, if you might remember, yeah. it has actually a long, interesting history invoked by many brilliant and famous scientists of the past. It's not a new phenomenon. And so it's not something you should sweep under the rug. It's, an, it's, an, it's a real and fundamental part of how people used to think about the world and how some people still do. That doesn't make it unworthy of knowing about. But since it does not produce discovery in the classical invocation of intelligent design where you approach a problem that you can't solve and you say this is the product of intelligent design because it is beyond the ability of the human mind to understand it. Which, by the way, is, is inexcusably hubristic when you unpack that sentence. It says that not only can I not understand it, neither can any one of my colleagues, and neither can anyone who will ever be born will understand this problem. So therefore, it's the product of a higher intelligence. That's audacious. Since when are you the measure of who will be smart to follow you. So uh, all I, the point I made was that the intelligent design being a philosophy of ignorance, where science is a philosophy of discovery, intelligent design does not belong in the science classroom. Get it out, teach it, teach, if you need it, put it, some, put it in the history of science class, it's there. Put it in a philosophy class, it's a point of philosophy. But it's not science. That was my dog I put in the fight. I never once mentioned the word religion. I never once mentioned the word God. That's all I, and then I went home. But people keep tugging on me to come back in. And I get claimed broadly by atheists. I'm on their list. And my wiki page, whoever writes these things, said Neil Tyson is an atheist. I said, I'm not really an atheist. Because so you can edit it, right? So I changed it. So he's an agnostic. Four days later, went right back to atheist. So there's some urge to claim me, which is odd because I, my writings are not about religion the way it is of many others who you've interviewed and who are your, all your pals, you know, Hitchens and, you know, Dawkins and Sam Harris. You want atheists, there's, a, there's, there's not a shortage of them right now, so why are you reaching towards me? So, so I said, I got to be cleverer how I edit this. So I said, all right, widely claimed by atheists, he is actually an agnostic. So that's managed to stay. And so there you have it. Do you know on my Facebook page, I was, I, was in, I was in Florida for the launch of the repair mission for the Hubble telescope, and I know some of the people on board. So, some of them are astrophysicist colleagues and friends of mine. So I said, beautiful launch, beautiful day. I said in my update, status update, and I said, Godspeed, Atlantis astronauts. Well, in came this one. I thought you were an atheist. Why could you use such a word? Not, it's like... <laughs> Then someone else said, actually, it says right here that he's agnostic. This would, so this became the subject in the thread. I had to jump back in and I said, Godspeed was the banner headline the day that John Glenn was put into orbit back in 1962. And since then, it has been an iconic phrase deep within the culture of the aerospace community. If you're religious, it means God be with you up there. And if you're not religious, it's just being culturally honest about how Aerospace people communicate with each other. And then I posed the question. I got this award from the American Humanists Association. So this, like, 
These are people who like cross off the word God in every dollar bill that comes through their possession. This is like an energy level that I can't even imagine having. So, so I said, so I said, you know, because they were upset about this too. And I said, well, how many people here have ever used the word goodbye? All the hands went up. I said, well, goodbye comes from God be with you. Ooh, we didn't know that. That's what goodbye comes from. It's a contraction of God be with you. And when would you say that? When you left the city gates and had to go between cities in the dangerous countryside where you might get mugged or robbed or raped or worse. So you say, God be with you to protect you on your journey. Well, we don't have city gates anymore. We have space. So God's speed is the, is the counterpart to that expression because it's speed that's going to kill you going into orbit. So... I find it a fact, so I'm okay with that. There's an interesting cultural history in the community of, astrophys of, of aerospace. And so that's why I can't claim myself, I can't agree to the claims by atheists that I'm one of that community. I don't have the time, energy, interest of conducting myself that way. I'm perfectly happy going to see the rock opera Jesus Christ Superstar. I have Handel's Messiah on my iPhone, along with Bach's B minor mass. That's some of my favorite bits of music. This is what I do, and I'm perfectly fine with that. I'm perfectly fine with having religious people who live all around me. I, I'm not trying to convert people. I don't care. We're in a religiously pluralistic society. Most of what accounts for the immigration waves into this nation were people fleeing religious persecution in their hometown. And no one will deny the richness of this country as a product of the immigration that unfolded. I'm okay with that. Just keep it out of the science classroom. That's my little dog. Maybe it's a poodle. I don't know. <laughs> but it's a... <laughs> so you ask me if I'm agnostic. I'm agnostic. And it's more that I don't really care. I, I don't, I don't want to have to spend all this energy, but I keep getting called out into the boxing ring. Largely against my wishes. Oh, yes, I'll go on to Wikipedia now. He's a passionate agnostic. <laughs> passionate. <laughs> Devout agnostic. Devout yeah. agnostic, yeah. If you, if you had not been a scientist, if you can even contemplate this, I mean, if, if one looks at your biographical stuff, you wrestled, you rode, you danced. Uh, I mean, would you, what, what other career could you imagine have, having had if had you not been a scientist? Do I have to be good at it, or can I just... Say I would do it because I. I said it. career, so you, you obviously would have to have a career. Oh man, I have to be good at it. Well, no, not everybody's good at their careers, but I mean, if I had a second career, it would be as a lyricist for Broadway musicals. Wow. Yeah, I love. I, 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 I get misty-eyed over simple lyrics in a Broadway musical where boy meets girl, and they have to pause under the tree and sing their love for each other. As corny as that is. If the words are chosen just right so that they rhyme and there's rhythm and there's meaning and there's sincerity, I, I, I get misty-eyed. And I like composing simple sentences that convey emotion and idea at the same time. And it's the act of writing word to page gives me an appreciation for that art, the art of the simple Broadway song. And were I to have another career, that's what I would try to do. Do you actually have a favorite in terms of... Um, Among musicals? Yeah. Yeah, I would, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar is very high on my list. <laughs> uh, don't tell the atheists. <laughs> and um, I like My Fair Lady. I, uh, a lot of the good songs in that one. And 
what else? A lot of other musicals, they're just songs you have to sort of pick and you have to sort of be surgical about uh, what songs worked in them. Uh, some good songs in South Pacific. So music, interesting. Yeah. Now, um... that's what my other career would be. I don't know that I'd be very good at it. I know I could write the song, the songs, but I'm not very musically talented. So you got to write in a way that someone can come behind you and put musical notes to it. And I don't know that I have that talent. I'd have to work at it very hard. There is a story which I, I assume is true that that. Um... And why do you assume it's true? <laughs> Just checking your science literacy. Because it's on your Wikipedia page. Okay. And I, oh, yeah, who knows? Go on. I figure that you would have sort of had it exorcised had it not been true. No, because I don't get to my wiki page. All right. Did, what was your first meeting with Carl Sagan? Uh, first meeting, he invited me to visit him in, at Cornell. I was in high school. I had applied to colleges. I was admitted to Cornell. And shortly after I was admitted, I got a letter in the mail from Carl Sagan. This is in an era where he's really famous and I'm just a 17-year-old kid and he'd been on TV then, the Johnny Carson show, uh, written several books, not quite, this is pre-Cosmos, so he's not as famous as he will be, but I already knew who, who he was. And he said, I understand you're interested in Cornell, you might choose to come, and uh, if you have the occasion to swing by, I'd like to show you the lab to help you decide whether you want to attend Cornell wow. in college. So I said, is this... I said, Mommy, Dad, look, this, is this, is this real? Is this? And so we arranged for me to go up to Ithaca, New York. I took a bus ride up there. He met me in the snow. Well, it was cold. It hadn't been snowing yet. Uh, outside of the lab, he took me into the lab. This was on a Saturday, by the way. Uh, sat down. He gave me a tour. Talked to me about my ambitions and what he did. Reached behind him, pulled a book out of a shelf. Didn't even have to look. Just pulled out. A, it was one of his books, right? And he signed it to me. I still have that book to this day. We were done. The afternoon came. It was in the winter, like late winter. He drives me in his car back to the bus station. It begins to snow. He's worried whether the bus will come through. He writes on a piece of paper his home phone number. The bus doesn't come through. Give me a call. Spend the night at our place. I said, who am I for him to give this level of attention to me? I'm nobody. I'm just a high school kid. Why did he know about me? Because the admissions office saw how sort of rich in cosmic interest my application to college was and said we got to get another opinion here so they sent it to Carl Sagan for his judgment on that I was already admitted so they were just trying to drum up interest from one department to another I think they did that with various applications if yeah. uh, if they had sort of extra interest expressed and as mine certainly did because I've been interested in the universe since age nine so in the Hayden Planetarium in the Hayden Planetarium so I to this day, have vowed that I would treat students the way he treated me. And I'm, I can now say that when students come to my office, I get to reach behind my desk and pull out a book. It's kind of, because I thought that was the coolest thing. You just have books, you, it's a book you wrote. And it was so remote to me that I would ever be in that position. But I said at the time, if I'm ever, ever remotely in a remotely similar situation than he is to me, then I will be no less respectful of students who express an interest in the universe. And to this day, that's what I do. If you call me and you're like the president of the museum or somebody important in Washington, but a student calls me up, I handle the student first. I'll get to you later.
And so that's, that was not so much on how to be a scientist, but how to be a person mixed in with what it is to be a scientist. How to be a person that cares and knows how to sort of pass a torch and ignite flames and promote interests. That's a, that's a sensitivity that I don't know that I would have had were it not for that encounter. I didn't ultimately go to Cornell, but I, I, I'll never forget that first encounter. Why not? Oh, because I judged, well, there are two reasons. One is the arithmetic reason, and then there's another reason. Which one do you want to hear first? Uh, whichever comes up first. Okay, so the regular reason, the simple reason is, were I to go to Cornell, it would have been because he was there more than for any other reason. But I knew enough about how academicians move from institution to institution that I didn't want to commit my four years on the assumption that he was stable there for four years. So I wanted a broader baseline of access to people and research. So you went to Harvard? Uh, so I went to Harvard, yeah. It must be nice... So you want to hear the second reason? Oh yeah, all right. So that's the simple reason, but the, the, the more accurate, complex reason is I'd subscribed to Scientific American all throughout middle school and high school. And I had this treasure trove, I mean I kept them. My favorite part of Scientific American is the part called About the Authors, which is a little mini bio on the scientist who wrote the articles. Back then, and what is largely still true today, scientists write the articles for Scientific American, not science journalists. And so I made a list of all the articles on the universe where those authors went to college, where they got the masters, where they got the PhD, and where they were on faculty. And I made a checklist among the schools that I had to choose from where most of them came from. And in the end, Harvard's list was four times the length of anybody else's. So more of the people who wrote for Scientific American had a Harvard affiliation, either as an undergraduate, graduate, or faculty than any other place. And I said, well, this has got to be for me. And had that been Oshkosh State University, that's where I would have gone to college. I had no caring or concern for the legacy of Harvard as an institution. I still don't. Other than that, it was a fertile place to do astrophysics. I don't wear a Harvard tie or a ring. Mm. I don't, because that sort of legacy of Harvard, the institution, um, had offered no seduction for me. So that's why I went to Harvard. So it must be kind of gratifying then, it occurs to me, that, um, I mean, the, the panel we just did lately, um, one of the Science Network's advisory board members, Andrea and Carl's widow, was on that panel. So you, you know her, um, you, you, you guys collaborate to some extent, I think, or working on something together. Um, you became chairman, president and or chairman of the Planetary Society. President of the Planetary Society that Carl Sagan co-founded. So it's kind of a nice continuation. Yeah, I mean, he left large shoes to fill. He died too early, as we know, I think it was in 62 or something. He'd still be alive today. His 75th birthday would be this year, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So uh, no reason why he couldn't have still been alive at 75. So there's large shoes to fill. And I'm not alone out there filling those shoes. There are others. I'm happy to report that in my field, while he was singular in what he did at the time, today I can name a half dozen at least of colleagues who are doing what I'm doing as part of the role on the landscape that Carl Sagan created. And we're all doing our little role, writing the books, doing interviews. Nowadays we'd be including blogs and other web pr uh, presence. 
to try to bring the universe down to Earth. Um, so would he be one, who, would, who, are the, who are the smartest people you've ever met and who would be the wisest people you've ever met? That person. I have to think about that. Because I don't, I don't go through life ranking people no. in that way. Uh, people, people have different strengths and the word smart usually means book learned typically, but I like people who are not so much book learned, but who have a capacity to think of solutions to problems they've never seen before. And so uh, then you get people who are like really smart, but they can't have a conversation with someone else because they're not socialized. And then, so they're not as effective in what they could have been because they can't communicate. So I, I, it's a complex function for who and what a person is to themselves or to others and how to rank that. So I, I'd have to think about that. Maybe by the end I'll tell you. In terms of where the communication of science issue is going at this point, uh, the public understanding of science, um, are you optimistic about this? Yes, I mean, quite optimistic. Yeah, I, for many reasons. For example, some of the most popular television shows have science as its foundation. Uh, the crime scene investigation franchise, CSI, they use science to solve problems every episode. And it's beautiful people with real live problems, not wire-haired, lab coat donning scientists in a lab, but real people who you might want to date, who are smart, talented in their science, be it chemistry, biology, physics, and they're solving uh, crime problems. And so the fact that that's primetime television, expensively produced, is a very hopeful sign. And if you speak anecdotally today, but I'm sure the statistics will bear this out when they're actually conducted, go speak to chemistry professors in college and biology professors and ask them to tell you what's driving the reason for who's majoring in that, those subjects. They're going to tell you it's CSI, especially girls coming in from middle school, I mean from high school. They saw crimes being solved by beautiful people invoking science. And the power of the media in this regard is, knows no bounds. So that's a good sign. It's not just the sciences, mathematics as well. There's another hit series called Numbers, where FBI agents are invoking math to solve problems. That's a hit series as well. And there's probably more books being, popular level books being published on science today than ever before. And there are more TV stations devoted to science programming than ever before. Back in my day, you could go months changing channels on the TV without ever finding a science program, except for maybe like the nature, you know, animals in Africa. Uh, nowadays, you can find shows on the Big Bang, on DNA, on robotics, on just channel surfing once. You can land on a show that's about science. You've got Mythbusters on TV. You've got um, radio programs. In fact, I'm, I'm host of a radio program, a, just a fledgling radio program called Star Talk, intended for AM talk radio market, not your NPR. And I have a co-host who's a professional stand-up comedian. And I bring current events into the conversation and she takes them and riffs on them. And it's intended to reach Joe, Joe Sixpack. Or any, intended to reach anybody who wants to listen. But, it's, but it's, it's targeting people who did not know that science was something they could like.
I think that's a, that's a demographic that is ignored by PBS, it's ignored by the book writers, it's ignored by, it's historically been ignored by those who are bringing science to the public. This is interesting because you obviously see the glass as half full. There are other people out there who would say to me, who would say, well, so CNN let go of its entire science and technology team. Miles is gone. They're all gone. Yeah, because they don't need it because you can Rick, get your Rick, science in 12 other places. Rick Weiss was let You get your science in 12 other places. Washington on, Post is gone. Because nobody reads newspapers anymore. We read the internet. I'm not, I, I so can't. So newspapers are gone? Print journalism on the way out? It's, the science coverage is not the only thing that's suffering in print news media. It's a symptom of a larger problem with their industry. It's not, oh, they're dropping their science people but keeping everybody else. Take a look at the thicknesses of newspapers. They're losing their ad revenue and they're, fire, they're letting people go left and right. Don't take it personally that they let go of their science, their science section. So uh, I look at all the outlets that people can now get science. I look at the fact that when the Hubble telescope was announced that it would not be serviced, there was a public outcry. The loudest voices were the public and not NASA and not even the scientists. The public took ownership of a scientific instrument. That's never happened in the history of the world. And it was the Hubble Space Telescope. Why is it that I'm on a TV show delivering science to the public? How's that even possible? How's it possible? I've written nine books on the subject. How is that possible? How is it possible that we have scientists writing bestsellers? Beginning, I would say, with, we can go back to like the, the double helix and things where those are exceptions. If you want to talk, talk about the rule, Starting with the Feynman books, all these books that made it into the top 10 back in the late 1980s, uh, and preceding that was The Brief History of Time, before anybody really, anyone in the public really knew who Stephen Hawking was. And you don't have to go more than a few months before a science book rises up into the bestseller list among readers. And the fact that Discovery Channel still exists and has an entire science channel spawned from their mother channel, I'm telling wake up and smell the roses or smell the coffee or see the roses how does that go <laughs> wake up and check it out so it's hopeful it doesn't mean it's being successful but access to science is greater than ever before yeah a lot of the shows that you mentioned are you sure that you weren't talking about I, I, I have to make a distinction here applications of technology there's a lot of guy shows out there and in fact if you when we were looking at that who who watches the YouTube? there is on the discovery channel but not on the science channel who watches the YouTube thing it's 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 a it's a highly skewed male audience the stuff that was watching the, the things the, the, the clip I was talking about mm -hmm. before mm -hmm. sure so the, the issue is how do you get more women involved in science? They're watching CSI. The biggest change in the majors are in women majoring in chemistry and biology. And today, last my record show, there are more women majoring in, uh, more women enter, declaring chemistry as a major than, than men in, in college. And, that, and in mathematics, there are more women majoring in mathematics than men in college today. Now you want to make sure there's not a leaky pipeline that they start out that way and then there's a discouragement factor because it's male dominated. You've got to watch out for that as the pipeline proceeds. But these are very promising signs. Okay, so, but isn't there a, isn't there a, a, a let's just do the devil's advocate thing for a moment. Um, the, the, the discovery that came out recently, um, uh, you know, the, the, the fossil, um, a 47 million year old fossil primate 
there was a huge media frenzy about mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. There was a book came out. It was all very carefully staged. Mm -hmm. TV came out, book came out, and so on. Mm -hmm. um, Nature wrote us um, an editorial which says, um, in principle, there's no reason why science should not be accompanied by highly proactive publicity machines. But in practice, such arrangements introduce conflicting incentives that can all too easily undermine the process of the assessment and communication of science. So Did they say why they made that sentence? It's a nicely composed sentence, but it's not defended by any factual information. Tell me why they believe that sentence is correct. I think they thought there was a lot of, of, of contrived hype accompanying something which should have just been peer-reviewed. It was peer-reviewed. Um, it was peer-reviewed. solely, and then... It was peer-reviewed. ...allowed to find its way into the world. It was peer-reviewed and published, <laughs> and then there was the news conference. Contrary to what happened with, with Pons and Fleischmann, mm -hmm. where they had the news conference before before it actually appeared in print. So no one could double check what it was they were saying because the article was not yet available for people to see. That's a transgression of the cart before the horse. In this one, they decided to create this publicity machine in tandem with the publication of the article. So who cares? So what? Suppose they did the article and then it got a lot of attention on its own by the press and then they decided to write a book about it. What's the difference? One of them, it happens simultaneously. The other one, it happens later. So what? What's your problem? It's, it's egg on their face if after it's published, other people show flaws in the work. Then they got egg on their face because they committed to this video and book and, and that's kind of embarrassing. So that's the risk that they take. No, no, nobody else takes that risk. If they want to take the risk, fine, let them take the risk. What do you care if it happens before or one day after? Who cares? This sounds like sour grapes. This sounds like, like ivory tower. Mm -hmm. It sounds like we can't have science be popular. No, then it's not science. What's important is that you don't have the media machine before the thing gets published. And there wasn't. There was not an article about it unless something leaked. There might have been some leakage, but in terms of formal press release, press release followed the publication of the article didn't precede it. And as far as I'm concerned, that's all that matters here. What's the last book you read? Just for, I'm just curious, out of, for, for fun. At, uh, I'm in the middle of Atlas Shrugged. Really? Yeah, I've never read it before. So I feel embarrassed that it had been around for so long. Well, no, there seems to be a resurgence of, of Ayn Rand mm. readers. Yeah, I don't know that I'm in the movement, but yeah, that's it. And I always have some Newton at my bedside. I have everything he ever wrote, so I'm always reading some. Tom Levinson has a new book out about oh, yeah. Newton at the Mint and his detective activities, which looks rather good and got some great reviews. Um, Tom Levinson produced and directed the Origins series that I hosted for PBS. Right. So that's uh, how we, we... Yeah, Origins... Um, we mentioned this a little bit on the way over here. We're actually in Francis Crick's old house, uh, apart from being one of the co-discoverers of DNA. He wrote a paper at one point. He was interested in the origins of consciousness, obviously the origins of life. He wrote a paper with Leslie Orgel, another member of the Salk Institute, in which they proposed a theory of di what they call directed panspermia, which is this notion that life arrived on Earth from elsewhere, hitching a ride on some piece of cosmic... Um, 
um, cinder of some description. I mean, mm -hmm. d d when you did your series, did you have any conclusions about origins to that level? I mean, where life came from? Oh, sure, that could easily happen. No one's in denial of that. That was only that only became a realistic scenario when we had high performance computers calculating the effect on the terrain of a planet in the presence of an asteroid impact. That you can send shock waves through, basically shock waves, the high energy waves through the material surface of the planet that can fling rocks into escape velocity from that planet. And then these rocks are float through space and they land on other objects. So that's fact number one. Fact number two, we know that certain branches of the extremophiles of life can survive long voyages without water, high radiation environments, such as, such as what it is in space, to the point where you're practically freeze-dried in space. And if you can survive that, and you're a stowaway in a nook and cranny of a rock, cast off of one planet, you can land on another planet. So it's an interesting idea, but it just pushes the question of where life came from to another planet. So it's not really deep. It's interesting, but not deep. You want to know how life started here on Earth? Oh, it started over there on that planet and traveled there. Okay, well, how did it start on that planet? And there's a point where you can't say it was panspermia because it had to begin somewhere without, without panspermia, I'm presuming. So it's fine. It's a, no one denies the possibility of that, given that we know that rocks move between planets. Are you hopeful? Are you, you, you told us, you mentioned that your, your kids are being subtly yes. imbued with some sense of science. and Science literacy. Science literacy. Yes. Um, do you have a vision of there being scientists? No, at some whatever they time? want to be is fine by me. In fact, if I, if I wanted to tell you what they want to be today, my daughter wants to be a novelist, and my son, he's a little bit distracted by baseball at the moment, so he probably wants to be a baseball player. Uh, but he's eight, so that's kind of to be expected. I'm not pushing them in any one direction or another. Neither did my parents push me. They s explored what our interests were and then supported it. So I'm p perfectly fine with that. So my daughter's written how many? Something like twenty thousand words of what will be her first novel. She's working on. So it's a cool concept with a cat. Uh, called Schrodinger. No, not Schrodinger cat. <laughs> this is uh, what's it called? Midnight Shadow is the name of the cat. This is a cat that can walk into a shadow at night, and then that shadow is a portal to another dimension. I mean, it's an interesting thing. So she's working on her novel writing skills, and that's fine by me. I'm perfectly happy. Um, but she's science literate. I'm telling you that right now. That's okay. for sure. You seem pretty, po I mean, you're pretty positive. I mean, what's the, what's the biggest m mistake you ever made, and what did you learn from it? Mistake? Hmm. I want to ponder that one as well. Yeah. I don't know. I have to think about it. Yeah, yeah I, don't, so, I don't like sort of log mistakes and dwell on them. I, I move on very quickly. Yeah. So I'd have to think about what would be the biggest mistake. Well, that's something else you something positive then. What are you optimistic about? I'm optimistic. Well, I'm not, well... I'm pessimistic about the future of NASA. I don't think people understand its value. And, I, and even with all the effort I've put in to convey the value of NASA to the nation, nobody's 
they don't understand. I, I've tried and I failed. And so I worry that NASA's not just not going to have any money to do anything. Well, there's the, there's the Time magazine cover, the current one, right? So that, This is a historical document, really, isn't it? This is, wow, that was great. So the problem with NASA is, well, well what's, the, what's the second act, right? No, it's not the problem with NASA. It's the problem with the public oh. that votes for money and with leadership to give vision for what NASA should do next. Not the problem with NASA. NASA, NASA. NASA does what we tell it to do. Aren't private people doing that now? Branson and various people? Branson goes up and comes back down. The next prize for it's this? It's an expensive liftoff. He doesn't go into orbit. He doesn't tell you that he's very far from going into orbit. He goes up, 60 miles up, and then comes back up. Um, sorry, six, yeah, goes up 60 miles and then falls back down to Earth. Isn't there an X prize for a lunar... A lunar land, unmanned, yeah, yeah. Go, go to the moon. So these X prizes are good, and they're incentive, and they might bring a, an economic driver to space exploration, which is going to need some source of money, if not government, it's going to need some source to happen at all. And historically, war has been a good driver for dislodging funds to go into space. We went to the moon because of the Cold War. We forget that when we retell that story. We like saying, oh, we were Americans and we we're explorers and we we're discoverers. No, we were at war and the Russians were going to beat us into space. Mm -hmm. And they already did. They beat us into low Earth orbit. They had the first animal in space, non-human animal, the first human in space, the first orbits, the first space station, the first space walk, the first, they had the first landings on the moon. They had a rover on the moon. Um, they, they did things, the only thing we did first was land people on the moon. Russians did everything else first, practically. So, and then we declared ourselves winner <laughs> once we finally did something that they didn't do. It's kind of funny. That's uh, part of the cleansing of that era that goes on in our memory. But if we're not at war, I don't see how we're going to end up going to Mars. Or we can't make an economic case for it, uh, a capital markets economic case for it. Uh, so I, I, I fear for the future of NASA. I don't want it to become just some service organization that puts satellites into low Earth orbit just to monitor Earth. Yeah, you want to monitor Earth, but you don't need NASA to do that. Have you any interest in going into politics at all? No, never, ever, ever, ever. I have no interest in trying to convince a person to believe one thing or another at all. Believe what you want, but just do it in an informed way. And for every person who runs for office, there's someone who's trying to say why what you say isn't right and trying to convince other people to vote for them instead of you. I, that's, I don't have the patience for that. I don't have the interest in it. I, I respect those who have the patience and the tolerance for that, but I, it's not for me. So now I asked you what you're optimistic about, and you told me you're pessimistic about the future of NASA. Yeah. So what are you optimistic about? Optimistic. I'm optimistic that this experiment that is America, this cultural experiment that is America, is actually working. It's working, slowly. It's working in a way that is better than I think people admit. Because I see it in my own lifetime. Consider, what is this experiment that it's America? I'll just tell you. 1963 or 64, President Johnson 
sends a letter to Werner von President Johnson, a Texas politician turned president of the United States, sends a letter to Werner von Braun, the German Nazi when he was when during the war, turned aerospace uh, I mean captured German rocket pioneer Werner von Braun. So a Texas president sends a letter to a German engineer in Huntsville, Alabama, which is the the Marshall Space Flight Center, where they're designing the Saturn V rocket, tells him to hire more black engineers into that operation. And if he can't find black engineers, he should work with the historically black colleges to attract students to go into engineering fields so he has a workforce in his lab that reflects the population of the United States. That was 1964. So Alabama is the seat of the civil rights movement, where there's a German rocket pioneer gets a letter from a Texas president. 45 years later, the head of NASA is black. Right. That's extraordinary. That, that's extraordinary. Okay? That's... Now, one could give a similar story in reference to Obama. But I'm intrigued, though, because Obama is exactly half white. Yet no one says he's white. They say he's black. And so you say he's black because that's how you treat him. That's how you categorize him. But I look forward to the day when we look back at this time and saying that he's black or saying that he's anything and just laugh at it. Because he's as white as he is black, but no one says he's white. That's kind of curious. Why don't you say he's white? Well, because he's black. Well, why do you say he's black? Well, because he looks black. Well, he's half white. So... Are you going to call things what people look like? What is what, and what does it mean he looks black? In Africa, he's got light skin. Compare his skin color to Africa. He's got skin color closer to white skin than to the very dark skin of Africans. So, so the fact that anybody's having that conversation at all, I look forward today that we just look back and laugh at it. We're looking for people with talent who need to lead the nation. Obama was just such a person. The current head of NASA is just such a person. So seeing where America was to where it's trending to go, I see that as a very positive sign for a nation that could just simply value people's talent no matter what their point of origin is. And I think they're describing such an era as being transracial. Uh, this whole thing with the Supreme Court appointee, uh, Sotomayor, how, how do you pronounce it, Sotomayor, where there's an issue that she was Hispanic American or female uh, there'll be a day when neither of those two issues come up. Then you'll know you've actually arrived. Because no one cares that you have Hispanic heritage. They just care what, what kind of decisions you're going to make in, in, in the Supreme Court. They're not going to care that you're female. They'll care about what kind of mind you have. When those no longer become issues, then they're not issues. And we are more there than ever before. When I'm interviewed on TV, nobody says, well, how do black people feel about the universe? It doesn't happen. There was a day when that would have, because all they could think about was they have to reference my skin color. When in my line of work, it's irrelevant. But people feel compelled that they have to mention it. So I'm hopeful that America could 
one day declare that our experiment was a success in spite of the fits and starts of the Civil War, of the slave trades, and all the rest of this, and the Civil Rights Movement, and the Women's Lib Movement, and the Gay Rights Movement, that the day will come. I know it sounds like kumbaya, and I understand that, but the trends are real, and I see the day when we look at the rest of the world and say, you're fighting over what? Oh, you're one religion and you're another, and you're like killing each other? You have this skin color and that skin color, and you're killing each other? It would be an example of how to behave when you're different. Because our, the human race has a really abysmal history of how they treat people who are different from themselves. There's this talk about cloning Neanderthal, you know, because they found some tissue of Neanderthal in the ice. They shouldn't do it. I don't want Neanderthal walking around. No siree. Mm-mm. You know why? Because we kill each other for less. We kill other members of exactly our own species for less. You're going to bring up a whole other, something that's almost human but not, Neanderthal. And we're pretty sure that our cognitive abilities are greater than that of Neanderthal. How are we going to treat him? I don't trust us. That's why you shouldn't clone him, because I don't trust the behavior of human beings. Leave him uncloned until we can demonstrate behavior befitting that experiment. Not that you asked, but that's the extension of my opinion from what you asked, what am I hopeful about? Well, just to extend the kumbaya moment uh, and, the, <laughs> and, the, and the positive stuff, I mean, I assume you would agree that science might have something to say about how to implement all those sorts of things. Oh, yes, yeah, science, I think, will, is the solution to it all, particularly neuroscience as a frontier, something you're closer to than I am. Uh, neuroscience, we, we don't understand the brain. That's as much of a frontier as the edge of the universe. And it's hard to study something using the organ that it is you're trying to study. You know, you wrote something, uh, just a couple, last, last thing here, but you, you, you actually, uh, I was struck by, there's a chapter in, I guess it must have been Death by Black Holes, where you talk about bafflement. I yes, think. on being baffled. Right. Death by Black Hole. There was this, there was this quote, that, uh, there's this couple of quotes by Lewis Thomas, who, was, who you'll probably remember, who wrote The Medusa and the Snail, Lives of the Cell. He Which said, were compilations of his other writings. Right. Yes. From, uh, and he said, at the moment we are an ignorant species flummoxed by the puzzles of who we are, where we came from, and what we are for. It's a gamble to bet on science for moving ahead, but it is, in my view, the only game in town. Why does he think it's a gamble? I don't even think it's a gamble. It's a pretty good bet. It's not only the only game in town, it's actually a pretty good bet, given its rate of success. I'm surprised he had that level of skepticism. His other great quote was, the capacity to blunder slightly is the real marvel of DNA. Without the special attribute, we would still be anaerobic bacteria and there would be no music. But blunder implies an intent that went awry rather than an actual random fluctuation in a, in a, in a, in a genetic code. So I wouldn't have used the word blunder there. Okay, right? Sure. Blunder implies that, uh, an incompetence and cosmic ray striking a DNA strand. Well, but see, now, he's using some... Plus, he also used another word that flummoxed. Flummoxed is like, oh my gosh, I have no idea. Let me go back and eat a well, chocolate chip cookie and warm milk. What's, what's bafflement, then? Um, flummoxed is you're stumped and you're giving up. Baffled is 
I'm stumped, but I want to try to figure it out. Something can be baffling. Let me keep looking. Flummoxed is that that makes you uh, makes you out as like you're an idiot. You know, flummoxed. But I, I bicker. I'm just. I, I, I'm just bickering with words. Well, you see word what I mean about here. in terms of, of how to communicate science. I mean, even even when you're using words, I think rather nicely to convey a, a general texture. And yeah, feeling. I don't think they're the best words. And I told you I care about words because I want to be a songwriter. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not pulling this out of the ether to complain about it. I'm saying a word has to be just right, and because you could hadn't thought of the right word is not an excuse to. It's not. It's not an excuse. So what's the right word for saying goodbye? Godspeed. <laughs> the universe. Neil Tyson, thank you very much. Okay. Thanks for having me.